Um, you may have felt a little bit of a sense of deja vu as Karen opened up the Bible and read for us before from Ephesians 1. If you were here last Sunday, you'd be going, hang on a minute. Isn't that exactly the passage that um, Kevin Murray was preaching on last Sunday? It is. I chose it first. Uh, that's all I've got to say. Uh, Kevin let us know just in the uh, days leading up to the service what he was going to be preaching on. I thought, that's good. That's great. Uh, let's pray um, and um, let's get our Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 1. Heavenly Father, um, we are people who need to see clearly your truth, so we pray that you'd help us do that today. Father, there's so much here in this great part of the Bible. Um, we know we won't be able to see everything today, but Father, help us to see the truth that you want us to grab hold of. And not just see it, but we pray that you'd implant it in our hearts, just like... Uh, like James says, the word of truth planted in us which brings forth um, growth and a harvest for the future. We pray that you would do that through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. My guess is that there are times, maybe just on Tuesdays, maybe mostly on Sundays, I don't know, <laughs> when you feel frustrated by the church. Um, I know I feel frustrated by the church. Uh, when I say the church, I mean the church in general, but also specifically this church. And we all have moments of frustration, don't we? Um, if you're not ever frustrated with the church, either you have been given a great gift of patience by God, or else maybe it's just that you don't care that much. Um, I, I think we do care though and I think because we're not yet in heaven the reality is all of us, uh, our, our patience is limited and all of us feel that frustration from time to time. wonder though where that frustration comes from. Where do you think that frustration comes from? The dictionary talks about frustration like this. It says that it's that feeling of being upset or annoyed particularly when there's something that you want to see changed or you want to be able to achieve something and you're not able to do it. Now, we look at the church and we kind of go, ah, I wish this was different. And we, we have a, an idea somewhere of what the church ought to be like and we get frustrated because our experience of being in the church, being part of the church, doesn't match up always with our expectation and we, we want to be able to see that change but it's not changing. And so what happens is I might get frustrated about one or two, let's limit it to two, uh, I might get frustrated about one or two things, you might get frustrated about something else, the person sitting a couple of rows behind you, they're getting frustrated about something totally different, so it might be um, to do with how we do evangelism in the church or women's ministry or something like that. And I think it's natural and perhaps even good that there is a certain amount of frustration with the church as long as that frustration is coming from the right place. Because the truth is the church is not all that it could be. This church is not all that it should be. There, there is this good and right frustration that is perfectly normal, that we should expect. 
The question is, what, what is the something better that we ought to be? What is that other thing that's missing that we ought to be aiming for? Where do we find that out? Whose programs, whose ideas should we be following? Well, answering that question really is what the next eight weeks are trying to be about. Answering that question is the reason that we're working through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Because answering that question of what the church is like is one of the things that Paul is concerned with. He wants the church to know and to understand and to see and to kind of get what being a church is all about, what it means to be God's church. And what he's written, which was originally to probably a group of churches scattered around Ephesus um, 1,900 years ago, what he has written back then is still God's word for us today. And so that means when we look at Ephesians here in the Bible, we, we see it as, as something that God wants us, Epping Presbyterian Church, to be reading so that we can properly understand reality, so that we can properly understand who we are as the church, to get what it means to be God's church, to, to see where we've come from, where we fit into God's plan for the universe, to be able to see what our future will look like and what we're supposed to be doing about that today and tomorrow and the day after. Now, you, you get a sense of that when you look at how Paul praise for the Christians in Ephesus in chapter 1. I hope you've got your Bibles open. Um, on that first page, in fact, Ephesians is great, you get half of it in that first opening there. Um, chapter 1, verse 18. Look at how Paul prays there. Here are the things that he's concerned about. Here are the things he's saying to God, this is what I want for the church in Ephesus. Um, not only verse 17, that they might know God better, but he also prays this, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he, God, has called you. I think that's a great prayer. He's praying that the, the people who make up the church in Ephesus, that God would enlighten the eyes of their hearts so they would see, not just in an intellectual way, but in a fully grasping kind of way, the hope to which God's called them, the hugeness of what that is. Much too often our problem is that we view the church as too small, that it's trivial and insignificant. I don't think we would ever necessarily say that out loud, but the place that the church has in our lives in relation to other things betrays the fact that we don't give it really the, the place that it has in God's plan. Um, the, that's the story too that we're constantly being told from the community, isn't it? That the church is small, it's insignificant, it's in decline. If you think about it as a performance on a stage, we kind of get told that the church, yeah, the church is performing but on this tiny little stage out in the back of nowhere, the audience is mostly losing interest in what you're doing, so why bother? But actually, you read Ephesians, and it says the truth is something very, very different. The truth is, the church is playing on the biggest stage in the universe, and the audience who's watching is anything but bored. Anything but bored. 
In fact, as we go through Ephesians, you'll see that there are lots of references to how the powers and rulers in the heavenly places are involved in what's going on here. And they are paying close attention. Can I just make a plug here for a sermon that Steve Adams preached a couple of weeks ago? Um, And uh, he preached it at the morning services, so you guys didn't get to hear it. But he preached a very helpful sermon on the spiritual realm. I reckon that would be worth going online and having a listen to uh, in order to help orient you for some of the stuff that is coming up in Ephesians in in the next little while. But let's come back to this thing of our view of the church is too small because we really are playing on the biggest stage in the universe. And Paul is praying that the eyes of our heart will be opened to see that, to understand that. He's writing Ephesians to help us see, to help us grab hold of that true reality, that bigger cosmic reality. And that reality is part of the DNA of the church. It's part of what makes the church what God wants the church to be. It's written into I guess, the genetic coding of who we are. That sense of playing on the biggest stage in the universe, you get a sense of that in these opening verses of chapter 1. So let's have a look now in in what's going on there. Um, Notice the scope of what Paul is talking about. So he talks about stuff that has started from before the beginning of time, uh, in verse 4 there. And he talks about things going through until the day when the times will have reached their fulfilment. So from before the beginning right until the conclusion of everything. Uh, He talks about um, the world that we can see and touch and taste and smell. So it's written to real people in a real city, Ephesus, where you could go and get fish and chips in the markets or whatever. Uh, But he also talks about this unseen heavenly realm. It comes up as early as verse 3, but we see it again and again as we go through the book. And in verse 10, he also talks about everything being part of what's going on here. He talks about all things in heaven and on earth. So the scope of things is vast. I want you to notice something else as well. All the way through these early verses and also... Uh, This happens a lot through the rest of Ephesians. So there are places in in chapter uh, 3 and chapter 4 where it's the same, where there are important things happening. The language that Paul uses just escalates into this over-the-top kind of way. He he uses extravagant, completely over-the-top, but also completely appropriate, totally appropriate language. So verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1 are a good example He starts out, he says, in him, in Jesus that is, we, who've put our faith in him, have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now that already is a big deal thing, but look at what he does now. He then goes on to say, this is in accordance with the riches of God's grace. How would you calculate God's riches? You know, there's been a lot of talk about how much money Malcolm Turnbull has this week. God's riches are infinitely greater. What's God done with his riches? It says, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Not a, he hasn't given us kind of 0.5 of a percent. He's lavished his riches and grace on us 
with all wisdom and understanding. I mean, this is extraordinary, over-the-top stuff. But it's totally appropriate. And what I, what I hope you, you're starting to see, the, the sense that is coming through here, is that being a Christian is no small thing. Being a Christian is no small thing. Being a follower of Jesus is not, please understand this, it is not in the same category as being a follower of the Wallabies, say. I'm sure some people will probably stay up late tonight to follow the Wallabies. Hopefully it's going to be worth it. It's not, being a follower of Jesus is not the same as being a fan of the Beatles. You know, some people get obsessed and they collect all of the records and all the changes in album covers that there have been over the years and they know all the words to the songs. It's being someone who is connected in with Jesus and a follower of Jesus is not like being a follower of Upper Middle Bogan, as great as that show is, or being someone who's devoted to Jesus, not the same as being devoted to Kung Fu movies. All of those things are, are infinitely smaller than Christ. Jesus, belonging to Jesus is infinitely bigger than any of those things. And those are the things that people pour their time and their emotion and their devotion into. Belonging to Jesus, Ephesians 1 says, means that you are connected into God's plan for the whole universe, for the entire cosmos. A plan that covers every single dimension of existence. So the physical world, and also the spiritual realm of angels and demons and powers and rulers and authorities that the Bible very unashamedly says are real and true. And if you're joined by faith to Jesus Christ, notice how Paul uses that language a lot here. He talks about us being in Christ, in Him, like we've been united with Christ by faith. If that's true for you, that means that you've been woven into God's great big plan to bring everything in existence under one ruler, one authority, one Lord, one King. He says to sum up everything under Jesus Christ. So verses 9 and 10. It talks about God's great plan which he's revealing. Um, what's he going to do when the times have reached their fulfilment? He will bring all things in heaven and on earth together, all things together under one head, even Christ. Uh, that similar idea is there again in verse 22. God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be the head over everything. Everything. Don't miss what this means, you know. Being a Christian is no small thing because this means God's plan is to crown all things with Christ. Every taxi driver, every school teacher, every carpenter and bricklayer, every doctor and lawyer and university undergraduate. But more than that, this is going beyond just you know the, the people who we might automatically think of. This is also talking about every Muslim and every Buddhist and every single atheist and Christian and agnostic and person of every religious persuasion and every sexual orientation, every single person from every single year in history, their destiny 
is to come under the rule and authority of Christ. They will be summed up. They are not the sum of things in themselves. They will be summed up in Christ, no matter who they are. Angels, demons, princes, kings. Their existence is summed up in the exaltation of Jesus Christ over all. And that's God's plan. Jesus over everything. Nobody else gets to wear the crown in that day. Now, if that's not amazing enough, look back at verse 22 and read how it connects to verse 23. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything. Why? For what purpose? For the church. For the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There's more of that over-the-top kind of language that makes it kind of hard to understand, but do you see that there? Woven into our DNA as the church is this great big plan of God. Somehow this business of summing up all of creation under Jesus is for the church. The glorification of Jesus is somehow for the church. So glory is in our DNA. Massive glory. It's part of who we are as the church. And the message we get from our society is the opposite of that. The church is insignificant. It should be excluded from public discussions. It's an annoyance. We should get rid of the church from our schools. Stop them teaching scripture to our kids. You know what? It doesn't matter what the rest of the world says. Here's what God says. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. His body, Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's amazing. Glory is in our DNA. Glory is in our DNA. But here's the thing. It's not our glory, is it? Look at verses 11 through to 14. Paul talks about two different groups of people here. Verses 11 and 12, he's talking about Jewish believers. So the very first Christians, the first ones to put their faith in Christ, were Jewish people, like Peter and James and John and Andrew and Saul, who became Paul. And Paul writes (coughs) that according to God's plan, they put their hope in Christ so that they might be, their existence might be for the praise of his glory, the Jewish Christians. Then in the next couple of verses, 13 and 14, he's talking about non-Jews, people like most of us who are here today. Because Sue's not here, I'm not sure that we have any Jewish believers amongst us today. But um, he says, just like us Jewish believers, you also you Gentile believers, you were joined up with Jesus when you believed the gospel and God gave you his spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Why did he do that? Why did God pour out his spirit then on on all the nations? To the praise of his glory. Glory is in our DNA. 
but not our glory. It's, it's about God's glory. Even actually if you go back to the earlier verses in chapter 1, all of the stuff that's being spoken about, verse 4 onwards, God's choosing us, He's saving us, He's joining us to Jesus Christ, giving us a new identity so that we're in Christ, He's adopting us, making us part of His family, His forgiveness of our sins. All of that, verse 6, is to the praise of His glorious grace. It's for His glory. God's glory in Christ, which we know one day will be on display across the whole cosmos. God's glory in Christ is on display right now in the church. That's the amazing thing that's going on here. It's a big idea that runs through Ephesians, in fact, through the whole of the New Testament, but it's strong here in Ephesians. God's amazing glory, his jaw-dropping glory, his glory which shines brightest in the kind of upside-down way in which he wins the victory over Satan and all the evil powers through the cross of Christ. God's glory, which one day will be evident to every being ever created, it's on display right now in the church. In the church. Now that makes sense logically when you think about it, doesn't it? What is God's ultimate plan for the universe? It's to exalt Jesus above everything and to unite all things under him. What's the church? Well, what the church is, when the church is what it's supposed to be, it's, it's a little mini cosmos of exactly that, isn't it? It is a place where you're seeing Jesus exalted above everything else and all kinds of people coming together, being united under him, submitting themselves to him and his rule and his authority. That's what the church is. It's a place where God's glory is on display in the world. Now there's stacks more in in the passage here um, and it would be worth, if you're in a growth group that's going to look at Ephesians, it would be worth digging down deep and maybe grabbing a commentary or something to help you to explore things even more. But right now I want to use these last few minutes to think a little bit more practically about this idea of if the glory of God is in the DNA of the church, if we're supposed to be the display of his glory, what's that going to look like? How's that supposed to be shown in the world around us? Well, you can buy books, listen to preachers, watch shows on TV that will say things along these lines. The glory of God (coughs) is to be present in the church and that means that should be manifested in... (coughs) Uh, the church being bigger and better and more glorious than anything else in the world. We should be slicker and smarter. We should have you know, the, the best-looking, most well-adjusted people in the community. But I don't think that's what the Bible says. I mean, the glory of God in the church is, is not that we should have the most downloads uh, from our website of any website around the place. It doesn't mean that we should live the most glamorous or successful lives. The glory of God is not measured in the number of programs our church runs during the week. It's not about how good the music is or whether the uh, preaching leaves us feeling inspired. And certainly not calculated 
by the influence of the church in the wider society. Although that looks and feels glorious to lots of people, that's not where the glory of God is seen in the church. God's glory is seen in the church when we are, our little community of people here, actually becomes that living, breathing example of what the future of the cosmos is going to be. God's glory is seen in the church when our lives are lived together under the authority of Jesus, when we live as people who say, Jesus is <coughs> the King and I will live in the way that he says I should live, when we're submitting to his word, when we're deliberate about shaping the relationships we have with people around the way that he related to people, self-sacrificial love, giving his life up on the cross for us. That idea of glory being encoded into our DNA, we live that out when we are making sure that putting Jesus first is at the very core of everything that we do as a church, as the church, as the church gathered when we're meeting together and as the church scattered as well in our workplaces and families and groups of friends it's when that's happening in all of the big decisions and also in all of the small decisions. So let me give you an example of the kind of small decision where the glory of God in Christ can shine in a really significant way. Decisions like who you are going to sit next to and what you might talk to them about when we're gathered, so here at church, maybe when we're out in the foyer for afternoon tea. But also when we're the church scattered, when you're on the bus or the train going to work. It's very easy to sit where we always sit, talk to the people we always talk to. But if we want to put Jesus first, show that he's Lord, he's exalted above everything else, then let's think about how did Jesus live? How did he relate to people? Who did he go and talk with? What did he do? He was deliberate, wasn't he, about going to the sinners and the tax collectors, to actually going up and touching the lepers, the unclean people in the society, to show them the love of God and the power of God. And we demonstrate God's glory, that thing which is built into our DNA, when we deliberately act like Jesus, when we live with him as Lord. So when we go out of our way to encourage another person. Um, I can't remember where I heard it recently, but someone said that uh, you know, when you get that little holy impulse to say something to a person, to, say, to pray for them, to uh, follow it. It's a prompting of the Holy Spirit. Don't turn away from that. When we go out of our way to encourage a person, to speak to them, to show them that God loves them, to encourage them to trust Jesus more, that magnifies Jesus in their life and it magnifies Jesus in our own hearts as well. That's just a really small way. But here's the thing we've got to see and understand. When, when the eyes of our heart are enlightened to understand the hope to which God's called us, when we're doing that, it might not seem like much, but that is exactly the kind of thing that Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10, is showing to the powers and authorities in the heavenly places that 
what God says is going to happen really is going to happen, that Jesus is ruling, that all things will one day be summed up under Christ, that God's victory over Satan is real because he is changing the lives of sinners in ways that only the Holy Spirit can do. And God's plan to bring everything under Christ is already happening in this strange little thing that we call the church. Now, I haven't got any um, great stories to tell you or fancy illustrations to wrap up with. What I do want to do is just finish by sharing my deepest desire for this church. What I long for most, what my most, I guess, fervent, deepest prayers are about, more than anything else, is that God would do something amazing by the power of his spirit and his word amongst us so that together we would really and truly be consumed with a passion for Jesus Christ, for God's glory in Christ, that we would be totally taken up with serving Jesus and serving one another, with loving Jesus and loving one another, a desire to see Jesus exalted as number one, to see his cross He's paying the price for us so that we don't need to perform any, any magical rites or anything. To hold that up is what we've really put our trust in. And you know, if, if we were able to have that, but as a consequence we had to lose a whole bunch of the other stuff that we do as a church, that would be okay with me. If we could have that kind of unity under Jesus and passion for him and we had to, for some reason, lose our property and our finances, that would be okay. As long as we're completely sold out to Jesus being number one. Does that kind of longing strike a chord with you? I hope that it does. Because Paul's picture of what the church should be, as it's presented here in Ephesians, is pointing us in that direction. And there's so much more still to come too. So to finish up, to get even more practical still, I want to encourage you to pray that way right now. So open up your Bible to Ephesians 1 and just spend a couple of minutes looking at at his prayer in verse 17 onwards. And I want you just quietly, privately, to pray your own version of that prayer, to turn this into your prayer for God's church. And after we've had a bit of silent time praying, I will, uh, I will pray to wrap up. So let's pray. Eternal and almighty God, our Father, we ask you please to pour out your Spirit upon us, your church, 
a spirit that helps us to see and understand and know what you've called us to. We pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we might truly know the hope to which you've called us and that that hope, that glorious picture might overrule all the other false hopes that drag us away from you in this world. Father, we're so often hungry and we go to feed ourselves in other places. Father, enlighten the the eyes of our heart that we might know the hope to which you've called us, the glorious inheritance uh, that is ours in Christ, your great power which is at work in us, your church, so that we might pursue the glory of God in Christ in everything, in our relationships, in our conversations, in the way we allocate time for things in our life, in our priorities, in the way in which we speak to people, in the way in which we're going to speak to people right now as church concludes. Exalt Christ in this community, we pray, so that the the powers and authorities in the spiritual realm might tremble with wonder and awe at your wisdom and your mercy in transforming sinners like us to be brothers and sisters, children of the living God. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.